This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is lessons learned from football. In the first half, S. Gifford Nielsen shares his address, Rise and Shout and Shine Forth. Then in the second half, Larry Echohawk speaks on an unexpected gift. I pray that the Spirit will be with us to prompt our thinking as we join together. Our son shared a story told him by a teacher at BYU recounting a family's experience while hosting an apostle in their home during a state conference weekend. The mother was anxious to prepare things as perfectly as possible for their respected visitor. Yet she found it challenging to keep the house clean while her rambunctious young boys ran and played from room to room. In an act of desperation after carefully cleaning the guest bathroom, she pinned a note to the towels that read, Touch these, you die. (laughs) The note did the trick because when the guest arrived, the house looked tidy and all went well. After the apostle left, the weary hostess was just about to sit down to relax when she had a horrifying thought. Did anyone ever take the note off the towels? Running to the guest bathroom, she was mortified at what she saw. The note was still in place, and the bath towels were clean and dry, but hanging on a hook nearby was a totally soaked hand towel. Can you imagine what was going through her mind? Well, this story became a treasure that brought the family closer together as they chose to find the humor in the experience. We all have days that go very differently than planned. She could have let this incident make her feel like a failure. Instead, she looked at the bright side of an embarrassing situation. Marjorie Pay Hinckley, the wife of President Gordon B. Hinckley, said, The only way to get through life is to laugh your way through it. You either have to laugh or cry. I prefer to laugh. Crying gives me a headache. How do you handle life's challenges and not let them bring you down? In the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord tells us to arise and shine forth, that thy light may be a standard for the nations. The phrase, arise and shine forth, reminds me of the BYU fight song. I love this university. While a student here, I played basketball and football, and one of my fondest memories as an athlete was to run on the court or the field to the sound of, Rise and shout! The Cougars are out! Have you ever seriously thought about the words to the fight song and pondered their meaning? Rise, all loyal Cougars, and hurl your challenge to the foe. You will fight day or night, rain or snow. Loyal, strong, and true, wear the white and blue. While we sing, get set to spring. Come on, Cougars, it's up to you. Let me share with you some lessons I've learned from people who exemplify the meaning of this spirited anthem. Legendary football coach Lavelle Edwards embodies the essence of these lyrics. He taught us to rise, all loyal Cougars, and hurl your challenge to the foe. Regardless of our opponent, he trained us to fight day or night, rain or snow. He was a genius at bringing people together, although his countenance on the field was rather subdued. It didn't look like he was having much fun. In fact, he stated this about himself, 
Someone once said, I'm actually a happy guy, I just forgot to tell my face. (laughs) But regardless of his game face, oh, how we loved him and learned from him. We wanted to do our best for him, and we did. He changed college football by establishing a successful passing offense instead of the running game so prevalent in the early 1970s. His desire was to have the white and blue recognized and respected each time we played. He hired the right coaches, recruited players that fit the system, and made sure things operated smoothly. Lavelle's success, for record, speaks for itself. He is the sixth winningest coach in the history of Division I NCAA football, and he's got a stadium named after him. He placed responsibility on the players to become better than they thought they could be. He asked us to get set to spring, and we started to accomplish remarkable things. In 1976, as the quarterback of this powerful team, I began to receive national recognition and honors. In 1977, we started the season red hot. We won the first three games impressively and were nationally ranked, leading the country in many categories for offense as we headed to Corvallis to play Oregon State. During the fourth quarter of the contest, I was hit hard in the left knee. I heard a pop. I didn't want to leave the field. How ironic that a few plays later the same knee was hit again and I knew that something was seriously wrong. Caught up in the emotion of the moment, I persevered to finish the drive, but we failed to score a touchdown when we needed it most. As I hobbled to the sideline, my knee felt unstable and I knew I was finished for the day. I was replaced, and to make matters worse, we lost that game. During the flight back to Utah, worries consumed me. I felt anxious and fearful as I wondered what my future might hold. One doubt I had was about the success of our team. We had worked hard together to build a nationally respected program. Would I be letting everyone down? At the Salt Lake Airport, I was met by my wife, Wendy, who was worried but extremely supportive. We made our way to BYU's Smith Fieldhouse, where we met Coach Edwards, Athletic Director Glenn Tuckett, Trainer Marv Robertson, and Dr. Robert Metcalf, who examined my knee. The look on the doctor's face said it all. My college football career was over. I needed immediate surgery to repair a detached ligament. How quickly our lives can change. I was devastated. Where do you turn when life gets hard? In my state of mild shock, I needed additional strength, and it was right in front of me. I asked for a priesthood blessing. Without hesitation, these four remarkable, loyal, strong, and true leaders were ready and worthy to act in the name of the Savior. A feeling of peace came over me as my fear turned to faith. The operation was a success. To this day, and even through six years of playing in the National Football League, I have never had another problem with my knee. The priesthood is not to be taken casually or lightly. 
It is the power and authority that God gives to man to act in all things necessary for the salvation of God's children. I was grateful for honorable men who were ready at a moment's notice to bless me. When I woke up the next morning after surgery, I tackled my new normal. I opened my scriptures and reviewed a list of priorities I had written before the season began. First, the Savior and our eternal family. They go together. Second, the Church and building the kingdom. They go together. Third, my education at this great university. That certainly goes together. Fourth, my football team and athletic goals. As I looked at life from an eternal perspective, I realized that in reality very little had changed. In the weeks that followed, my good friend and fellow quarterback, Mark Wilson, led the team to one victory after another, breaking passing records and gaining even greater national attention. So much for the concern that my team couldn't be successful without me. What a powerful lesson that was. Because of my respect and love for them, it became a privilege to offer support from the sidelines, although I have to admit it was difficult standing there using crutches and not being on the field. Another person who lives the spirit of Rise All Loyal Cougars is Coach Edwards' wife, Patty. She played an important role in Lavelle's coaching success. They were totally unified, illustrating the scripture. I say unto you, be one, and if you are not one, ye are not mine. In fact, Coach Edwards looked much happier when he was with Patty. They have a wonderful family and hundreds of football players and their wives who think of them as second parents. Successful marriages don't just happen. They require time, effort, hard work, constant communication, and a deep spiritual foundation. The Edwards knew this, and they did many things to improve their relationship. They spent Friday mornings before home games in the temple to make sure they kept life in perspective. Through their actions, they taught us the importance of being in the Lord's house and keeping sacred covenants. Later in life, they also served a successful mission to New York. Watching Patty and Lavelle demonstrate support for each other and commitment to the Lord provided a wonderful example for us. They never stopped teaching. In December of 2012, Lavelle underwent open-heart surgery. Just after the operation, while still connected to tubes and groggy from the anesthesia, Lavelle struggled to say, Patty, be sure to call the bishop and tell him we can't make it to tithing settlement. But tell him we're full tithe payers. They walk the walk of honor and commitment, understanding that, Cougars, it's up to you. Here was one of the most successful coaches in the history of college football, humbly demonstrating his commitment to the principle of tithing moments after major surgery. Together, Patty and Lavelle demonstrated to all of us obedience integrity, and faithfulness. They lived the Savior's teaching, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, 
and all these things shall be added unto you. O rise and shout, the cougars are out. Along the trail to fame and glory, rise and shout. Our cheers will ring out as you unfold your victory story. It was a blessing to learn so young that the victory story was never mine alone. The trail to fame and glory has nothing to do with our worldly ego and requires keeping our eyes fixed on eternal truths. Elder David A. Bednar taught this lesson succinctly when a young woman once asked him, If you could only give me one piece of advice, what would it be? Without hesitation, Elder Bednar said, Remember, it's not about you. The Book of Mormon missionary Ammon agreed, Yea, I know that I am nothing. As to my strength, I am weak. Therefore, I will not boast of myself, but I will boast of my God, for in His strength I can do all things. My dear friends, we know the doctrine. But do we keep our focus where it should be when life gets really hard? Kristen M. Oaks, the wife of President Dallin H. Oaks, taught, Each of us has felt moments of frustration, devastation, or limitation. That is part of our earth life experience. How we react to those situations makes all the difference. Heavenly Father has blessed us with eternal perspective, and if we live worthy of it and trust in Him, that eternal perspective can ease the burdens of life. What victory stories inspire you? Let me describe one hero and see how long it takes you to figure out who he is. He was a strong and mighty man. He was a man of perfect understanding. He was a man whose soul did joy in the liberty and freedom of his country. His heart did swell with thanksgiving to his God. He did labor exceedingly for the welfare and safety of his people. Are you getting this? He was firm in the faith of Christ. He had sworn to defend his people, his rights and his country, and his religion, even to the loss of his blood. His heart did glory in doing good, in keeping the commandments, and resisting iniquity. Do you recognize Captain Moroni? How would you like to be described as Moroni who raised the title of liberty? When we think of his vision and courage, our cheers will ring out. If all women and if all men had been and were and ever would be like unto, just put your name in there, add your name. The very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. Here's a big question. Who looks to you as a mentor? Have you thought much about that? I guarantee that somebody somewhere watches you and wants to be like you. You have more influence than you may realize. I pray that each of us can humbly follow the Lord and be righteous mentors as we hope to influence alma mater's sons and daughters 
for good. As we join in song, in praise of you, our faith is strong. These words describe Floyd Johnson, a man of cheerfulness and of great faith. Some people have very public influence. Floyd was an unsung hero, one of his offices right under the seats right over here. He worked as BYU's athletic department equipment manager for 46 years. Floyd knew it wasn't about him and wanted no recognition. He was a unique character and so wise. Between washing and drying uniforms every day, he read the scriptures and scheduled devotionals throughout the Intermountain area for athletes to share their experiences and testimonies with youth groups. Floyd's focus in life was simply to build the kingdom. He spent time with athletes of every religious background, answering questions and providing comfort. He continually invited others to learn more about the restored gospel, and many accepted his offer. One of his favorite stories reminds me of his gospel-sharing zeal. It was about two BYU football players who wanted to be better missionaries. One was a 260-pound defensive tackle, the other a 240-pound defensive end. In order to reach their goal, they were counseled to bear their testimony to somebody on the opposing team each week. Many thoughts went into their pigskin proselytizing as they tried to devise a plan. Their next game was against the Air Force Academy, and as they went through the first half, nothing happened. At halftime, they reminded each other of the commitment. Late in the game, as the Air Force quarterback dropped back to pass looking for a receiver, 260 pounds hit him, driving him to the ground. 240 pounds jumped on top of the pile. 500 pounds of priesthood power <laughs> on this little Air Force quarterback, and they were staring at him face mask to face mask. The 260-pound player asked, What do you know about the Mormon Church? The 240-pound player added, Do you want to know more? This little quarterback looked up to those four big eyes and said, Get off me, I'm a Mormon. I can see Floyd's playful smile while telling this favorite story. Through his example, we learned that one of the most important and fulfilling things we can do in life is to share the restored gospel with everyone. For some of us, this might seem hard to do. But if we pray for faith and courage to share, we, like Floyd, can find happiness as we bless those we reach. We loved being with him every day because of his positive influence. His down-to-earth authenticity created a safe place where living the Gospels felt so comfortable and so simple. I felt the same comfort and simplicity at a missionary meeting in Houston, Texas several years ago. President M. Russell Ballard spoke straightforwardly to 650 missionaries, admonishing them to evaluate their lives and make necessary changes. Then he invited them to draw a line down the middle of a piece of paper. You may all want to do this. 
At the top of one column, he told them to write, Things I need to stop doing in my life. And at the top of the other column, he told them to write, Things I want to improve in my life. Then he paused, looked at the group, and said, Fix it. What a way to vanquish the foe. Can it be that uncomplicated? I say yes, especially as we read and follow the inspired words of our leaders. I can't think of anyone who exemplifies the entire BYU fight song more than our new prophet, President Russell M. Nelson. I think he sang it ten times Saturday night at the basketball game. I love President Nelson. He is kind and cares deeply about each of us staying on the covenant path. He is the perfect example of one who never stops learning. I can testify of his keen understanding, insight, and desire to improve. One interesting lesson he taught came from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul teaches, Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. We all know what an epistle is. It's a written document. But here Paul tells us to be epistles. What did he mean? The scripture continues, Ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in the fleshy tables of the heart. President Nelson admonishes us to be walking, living epistles of God in all we do. I attest that we are sending messages every moment through our words and actions. What messages are we sending? How are they being received? When people see us coming, do they gravitate to us or do they scatter in a great escape? I invite each of us to be a powerful influence for good. We have value. We have purpose. May we be the kind of living epistles our new prophet describes. As we do so, we will raise our colors high in the blue and cheer not only our cougars of BYU, but also everyone we meet. My dear friends and associates in this marvelous work, the BYU Fight Song teaches us lessons we can successfully incorporate into our daily lives. We can rise to greater heights, improving day by day. We can work day or night through rain or snow to challenge whatever foe threatens our eternal peace and happiness as we are loyal, brave, and true in everything we do. We can join in song, be cheerful and united as we spring into action, realizing that while it's not about us, it is up to us to become living epistles, sending positive messages to those we encounter. We can realize that while the trail to fame and glory is not of this world, it is our destiny as we obediently humbly walk the covenant path back to our heavenly home and the ultimate victory story.
We can realize that many of Alma Mater's sons and daughters are watching us and looking for praiseworthy role models to emulate, examples of strong faith who raise their colors high and cheer all that is uplifting and worthwhile. Raw, 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 raw. (laughs) We trust you. We respect you. We love you. Go Cougars. I witness that Jesus Christ is the living Savior of the world. As the only begotten Son of a Heavenly Father, I know He leads His Church. I testify to you that Joseph Smith received an answer to his question in a grove of trees. As the Father and the Son appeared to him, the Savior's gospel has been restored in its fullness. The Book of Mormon is another testament of Jesus Christ. We are led by His prophets, seers, and revelators with President Russell M. Nelson holding all the keys as our prophet today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is lessons learned from football. We've just heard from S. Gifford Nielsen. After the break, we'll return with Larry Echohawk for An Unexpected Gift. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Lessons Learned from Football. Next is Larry Echohawk, professor of law at BYU at the time of this address, titled An Unexpected Gift. Echohawk. That's the English translation of the name given to my great-grandfather, a Pawnee Indian who did not speak English. He was born in the mid-1800s in what we now know as Nebraska. Among the Pawnee, the hawk is a symbol of a warrior. My great-grandfather was known for his bravery, but he was also known as a quiet man who did not speak of his own deeds. As members of his tribe spoke of his good deeds, it was like an echo from one side of the village to the other. Thus, he was named Echo Hawk. According to accounts of the first white men to encounter Pawnee people, The Pawnee were estimated to number about 20,000. Under the laws of the United States, they had the right to occupy 23 million acres of land on the plains of Nebraska. When my great-grandfather was 19 years of age, the Pawnee people were forced to give up their homeland along the Platte River to make way for white settlers. In the winter of 1874, the Pawnee people were marched several hundred miles southward to a small reservation located near the Cimarron River in the Oklahoma Indian Territory. Like so many other tribes before them, the Pawnee had their Trail of Tears. Tears on that trail from the Platte to the Cimarron were shed for the loss of a homeland, loss of the great buffalo herds slaughtered for their tongues and hides, and loss of a way of life. 
After arriving at that small Oklahoma reservation, the Pawnee people did not number 20,000. They did not number 5,000, not even 1,000. Less than 700 Pawnee people survived. That is a painful history, but the pain was not limited to one generation. In his childhood, my father was taken from his parents by the federal government and sent to a boarding school far distant from his home. There he was physically beaten if he spoke his Pawnee language or in any way practiced his culture or religion. In my generation, my oldest sister was sent home from a public school because her skin was the wrong color. I remember sitting in a public school classroom and hearing the teacher describe Indians as savage, bloodthirsty, heathen, renegades. And as I look back through the past years, perhaps the most painful thought is the realization that in my childhood, my family had no expectation of achieving a higher education and becoming doctors, lawyers, or engineers. A college education seemed beyond our reach. But out of that pain was born promise. Of the six children born to my parents, all six of us went to college. Four of us graduated from Brigham Young University. Three of us became lawyers. We have received the best this country has to offer, the full promise of America. The most vivid realization of that promise for me came in 1990. That year I ran for the office of Attorney General of Idaho. I knew I faced a daunting task because there had not been a member of my political party elected as Attorney General in 20 years. There had not been a person from my county elected to any statewide office in 38 years. And in all the history of the United States, there had never been an American Indian elected to any state constitutional office like governor, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, or attorney general. Furthermore, right after I declared my candidacy with the secretary of state, a political writer from the uh, state's largest newspaper, the Idaho Statesman, wrote a news article where he said, Larry Echohawk has no chance of winning election as Attorney General. He has three strikes against him. He's a Mormon, Indian, Democrat. And if you know anything about Idaho, that is three strikes. But I just simply, in response to that, went out and worked as hard as I could on that campaign. On election night, I was at a hotel where voting results were being reported. Late that night, I received a call from my opponent conceding the election. I remember hanging up the phone and thinking about what I would say to a large group of news reporters who were waiting to have me make some comment on that historic election. After a few moments of reflection, I walked out to meet the news media and made a statement. I did not have a written speech. I did not need one. I simply spoke from my heart and repeated words I had heard when I was 15 years old. 
They were spoken by a black civil rights leader on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. I have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream, that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day my children will be raised in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That night, I felt the power of those words and the realization of that dream. I felt the full promise of America. For me, life began to change at the age of 14 when two missionaries, Lee Pearson and Boyd Kampheisen, from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, came to my home. And presented the missionary lessons to my family. Up until that time, I knew very little about Christian religion and had seldom attended any church. When the time came for the missionaries to challenge our family to be baptized, they first asked my father and then my mother, and then they started from the oldest child and descended to the youngest. As the second youngest in the family, by the time they got to me, everyone else had said yes. When they asked me, I remember looking at my father, and he had this stern look on his face, and I knew what my answer should be. I was baptized. <laughs> but I did not have a testimony of the truthfulness of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the prophet Joseph Smith. I was, however, glad that my family had been baptized. Prior to joining the church, I had doubts about whether my family would stay together because my father had a drinking problem, and this had led to problems within our home. After we were baptized, my father stopped drinking, and family life was much better. However, I continued to live much the same as I had before I was baptized. Fortunately, my parents made me go to church every Sunday, and I had the benefit of listening to Sunday school teachers, priesthood leaders, and sacrament meeting speakers. I paid attention, but the church attendance was not influencing my life. Things began to change between my junior and senior years of high school when Richard Boren became my priest quorum advisor. I felt like he took a special interest in me. He was a successful lawyer, and I admired him very much. He told me repeatedly you can do anything you want. You can go to college, get a good education, and do wonderful things with your life. He pulled me aside and said, if you really want to do well in sports, you have to work at it. You have to set goals and develop yourself. At this point, I was not a particularly good football player. Although I wasn't a bad athlete, I wasn't anything special. With Brother Boren's encouragement and guidance, I set my goal to become a good football player. We set up a program of weightlifting, running, and skills development. I was small in size. To become a good football player, I had to gain weight. Weightlifting would help, but I had to do more. I began mixing up a special weight-gaining formula to drink. It consisted of raw eggs, powdered milk, 
peanut butter and other fattening things. I always put a little vanilla in it to make it taste better. It still tasted awful. In one year, I gained 20 pounds. When I showed up for football practice at the beginning of my senior year of high school, my football coaches could not believe their eyes. I thought I was going to be a defensive back, but when practices started, the coaches had me listed as a quarterback. This was disappointing to me because the captain of the football team was the starting quarterback, and I feared that I would again be on the bench. But I was prepared to compete, and I gave it everything I had. After a few days of practice, I came into the locker room and saw my name listed as the first-team quarterback. I had beaten out the captain of the football team. A life-changing moment occurred during two-a-day practices before the first game of the season. Between practice sessions, I was playing with my brother and two friends. Someone threw a ball. I turned around at the wrong time, and the ball hit me squarely in the eye. It was a serious and painful injury. I was taken to the emergency room of the hospital. My eye was swollen shut. I couldn't see a thing out of that injured eye. The doctor told me and my parents it was too early to tell, but I might lose the sight in that eye. He bandaged both eyes and sent me home. I had to lie in bed for a week. You can imagine how devastating this injury was to me because I had worked so hard and the first game of the season was only a week away. I kept saying to myself, how could this happen? Why me? How unfair. But this was a turning point in my life because as I lay there in bed for the first time, I started to seriously think about the other things Brother Boren had talked about. He talked about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the teachings of the Book of Mormon, and the power of prayer. I remember slipping out of bed to my knees. It was the first time in my life that I had ever prayed intently. There I was, with bandages on my eyes, alone in my bedroom, praying for help. I remember saying, Heavenly Father, please, if you are there, listen to my prayer and help me not lose the sight in my eye. I said, I promise if I can just keep the vision in my eye, I will read the Book of Mormon, as Brother Boren had challenged me to do. When the bandages came off, at first I could not see out of that injured eye, but gradually, day by day, my sight came back to near-perfect vision within a week. My football team, Farmington High School, had played their first game, and the season was underway. Soon the doctor cleared me to practice with the team. I was able to travel with the team to the next game in Grand Junction, Colorado. But I didn't think I was going to be able to play in that game. That night, our team fell behind by two touchdowns in the first half. Just before halftime, my coach approached me and asked me if I wanted to play. I said yes. During halftime, in the locker room, the coach came to me and said, my doctor and my parents had cleared me to play. 
he said to be ready and I might get a chance to play in the second half of the game. We did not play well at the start of the second half. Finally, the coach came to me and said, the next time we get the ball, you are going in to play quarterback. I remember being on the sideline and kneeling on one knee like football players sometimes do to rest and to watch the game. I just dropped my head and said a prayer. I whispered that prayer with real intent because I was about to face my biggest challenge on an athletic field. This would be my chance. The coach called me over, told me the first play to run, and sent me into the game. The play was a bootleg pass-run option. I was supposed to fake a handoff to the halfback, hide the football on my hip, and roll out around the end. If the field was clear, I was supposed to run with the ball. If the field was not clear, I was supposed to try to throw the football to a receiver. I took the snap, faked the handoff, and rolled around the end. I could tell after just a few strides that I would not be able to run the ball for a gain. The other team had the play well defended. A defensive end was rapidly pursuing me and was about to tackle me for a loss. At the last second, I saw one of my teammates down the field. I planted my foot, and this is where the weightlifting paid off. I threw that football as far as I could. As soon as I turned loose of the football, I was clobbered. I was on my back when I heard a loud roar in the stadium. I remember thinking, I don't know whether they're cheering for my side or the other side. I jumped up and looked downfield. I saw my teammate with the football 68 yards downfield in the end zone. That was the greatest moment of my teenage life to me. It was an answer to my prayer. I played the rest of the game. I passed for another touchdown and ran for two touchdowns. That night, my team, the Farmington Scorpions, came from behind and beat the Grand Junction Tigers. The next day, my name was in the headlines of the local newspaper. I had another eventful football game that year in Albuquerque. We played the state championship team harder than they had been played in any other game that year. After the game ended, one of the football coaches from the University of New Mexico came into our dressing room. He introduced himself and said, we like what we saw tonight. He shook my hand and told me he would be watching me the rest of the year. Having recovered my sight after the accident, I had immediately started reading the Book of Mormon. I had not been a good student through junior high and high school. I struggled because my mind was not focused on school. I love sports, but not academics. The Book of Mormon would be the first large book that I had ever read from cover to cover. As Brother Bourne had suggested, I planned to read ten pages every night. I never missed a night. When I finished the entire book, I knelt down and prayed. At that moment, I had my first very strong spiritual experience. I knew then the Book of Mormon was true. I had received my most important answer to prayer. 
Up until that moment, I had not realized that Heavenly Father had been watching over me and giving me answers to all of my prayers for healing and for a witness of truth. It seemed to me that the Book of Mormon was about my Pawnee Indian ancestors. The Book of Mormon talks about a people, the Lamanites, who would be scattered, smitten, and nearly destroyed. But in the end, they would be blessed if they followed the Savior. That is exactly what I saw in my own family history. When I read the Book of Mormon, it gave me very positive feelings about who I am a knowledge that Heavenly Father had something for me to accomplish in life and how I could be an instrument in His hands in serving the needs of other people. After I finished reading the Book of Mormon, one day after the football season, I was sitting in a classroom when a student messenger passed me a note. It said to go see the football coach. I went down to his office. The door was closed. I knocked, and he said, Come in. I opened the door and looked across the room. The head football coach of the University of New Mexico was sitting there. I remember that moment vividly because as soon as I saw him, I knew I was going to college. Brigham Young University also recruited me but I wasn't sure whether they would offer me a scholarship. I remember the meeting with Tommy Hudspeth, the head football coach. He asked me whether I had any other scholarship offers. I said, yes, I have a full-ride scholarship to the University of New Mexico. I happened to have the scholarship offer from New Mexico in the notebook I was carrying. I handed him the letter, and he read it. He folded it up, handed it back, and said, you have a full scholarship at BYU. My hard work, encouraged by Brother Boren, had paid off, opening a door to a college education. But more importantly, a seemingly freak accident had opened a spiritual door through which celestial blessings have continued to pour out upon myself and my family. Reading the Book of Mormon and receiving a testimony of it gave me an unexpected but welcome gift in my life. I came to Brigham Young University in August of 1966 to earn a college education and to play football for the Cougars. Right from the beginning, I was earmarked to play as a defensive back. It was a challenge since I only weighed 165 pounds. I was the starting defensive safety on the freshman team Thereafter, I played in every BYU football game in my sophomore, junior, and senior years. I was a starting free safety for the Cougars as a junior and senior and never missed a defensive play. Being a student athlete at BYU for four years was a remarkable experience for me. I associated with many great men and women and learned important lessons in life under their tutelage. I became a product of the BYU experience. My testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ grew, and I solidified my vision of what I should do with my life. There was a companion spiritual influence in my youth. Spencer W. Kimball was one of my greatest mentors. 
At church in New Mexico, people talked about the apostle who had a great love for Indian people. The name of Spencer W. Kimball was revered. Prior to coming to BYU, I met him at an Indian youth conference in Kirtland, New Mexico, a largely LDS community about 10 miles outside of Farmington. I remember standing on a softball field with several other Indian youths waiting for this apostle to come. There was a lot of anticipation. A car pulled up. Men in dark suits got out and came walking across the field. All these young Indians were waiting for this apostle. As the men approached, I was standing there thinking, which one is he? Finally, he stepped forward. He started talking to us in a raspy voice. My thought was, is this him? The wonderful thing about him was that he befriended us all very quickly. This was a real feat because it's not easy to get close to Indian youths. Later, when I was a student at BYU, I heard him speak several times. Like Brother Boren, he provided a blueprint for my life. When I was a BYU student, he gave a speech entitled, This is My Vision. In this talk, he related a dream. He said, I woke up and I had this dream about you, about the Lamanites. I wrote it down. It may be a dream. It may be a vision. But this is what I saw you doing. In one part of the speech, he said, I saw you as lawyers. I saw you looking after your people. I saw you as heads of cities and states and in elective office. To me, it was like a patriarchal blessing and a challenge from a prophet of God. Get an education. Be a lawyer. Use your education to help your people. That is what I wanted to do. I carried an excerpt from that talk in my scriptures. At a certain point in my life, I read the passage where he said we could become leaders of cities and states, and it was as if it were directed specifically to me. Even though I had never envisioned running for elective office, I knew that I could and should do it. I love President Kimball. The day he passed away, I cried. I was overcome because I had felt his love for me. I had seen so much good that he had accomplished for all people. But I was especially grateful for what he had done to lift Native Americans. When I graduated from BYU, I decided to become a lawyer for one reason, to help Indian people. After graduating from law school, I spent nine years working as the attorney for Idaho's largest Indian tribe, the Shoshone-Bannock tribes, located on the Fort Hall Indian Reservation. I saw a marvelous awakening under laws that now help Native American people to become self-sufficient and economically strong. I've always thought it was no accident that Indians were able to survive as a separate, identifiable people. I don't know how the Lord is going to use such people in his ultimate plan, but I see many Native Americans who have been able to earn a college education and do the same kinds of things I have done. 
there's been a very definite positive cumulative impact. During the Vietnam War, I volunteered for service in the United States Marine Corps. Soon after I arrived in Quantico, Virginia for boot camp, I found myself standing at attention in front of my bunk in our barracks along with 54 other Marine Corps recruits. I met my drill instructor when he kicked open the door to the barracks and entered while yelling words laced with profanity. He was a tough, battle-hardened veteran who had been previously wounded in Vietnam. He started at one end of the barracks and confronted each recruit one by one. Without exception, the DI methodically found something about each recruit to ridicule with vulgar language. I dreaded that it would soon be my turn. When it was my turn, the DI grabbed my duffel bag and dumped my personal belongings onto my bunk. I could not see what he was doing because I had my back to the bunk and we had been instructed to stand at attention with our eyes looking straight ahead. When we spoke to the DI, we had to call him Sergeant Instructor and yell out our words. The DI looked through my personal things and grabbed my Book of Mormon, walked up to me, and I braced myself for his attack. I expected that he would yell at me as he had done with all other recruits. Instead, he stood close to me and whispered, saying, Are you a Mormon? As instructed, I yelled, Yes, Sergeant Instructor! Again, I expected he would then rip into me and my religion. He paused and raised his hand that held my Book of Mormon. And then, in a quiet voice, he said, Do you believe in this book? Again, I yelled out, Yes, Sergeant Instructor. At this point, I was sure he would yell out disparaging words about Mormons and the Book of Mormon. But he stood there in silence. Finally, he walked back to where he had dumped my personal things, and he gently laid my Book of Mormon down. He then proceeded to walk right by me without stopping and went on to the next recruit and ridiculed and disparaged him with vile language. And thereafter, he did the same to every other recruit. I have often wondered why that tough Marine Corps drill instructor spared me that day, but I am glad I was able to say without hesitation that I am a Mormon and that I know the Book of Mormon is true. That testimony is a precious gift given to me with the help of two missionaries, a priest quorum leader and a prophet of God. For this I am very grateful. I bear my testimony of the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ as contained in the Book of Mormon, and I do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Lessons Learned from Football, 
with thoughts from S. Gifford Nielsen and Larry Echohawk. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.